Welcome back to the Free Drop Podcast and this conversation with player-turned-commentator Tony Johnston. It was such a delight for me to have a chat with the man who's basically been the soundtrack to my Sundays for as long as I can remember. We chat about the Ryder Cup, Live Golf, the ball rollback and so much more during what was a delightfully insightful and witty conversation. Before we get to the chat though, I just want to encourage you guys to give us a follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok at FreeDrop underscore podcast. Now let's get to Tony Johnston. Enjoy. Where did you grow up and what was your home course? I grew up in Bulawayo, in Rhodesia it was then. Um, and I was actually a member of three golf courses. Membership for juniors was was uh, so cheap. I was a member of a little golf called Waterford Golf Club out in the sticks. Harry Allen was my home club uh, in Bulawayo and the Bulawayo Golf Club. So yeah, I was a member at all three. I mean, it was a pittance to be a member. So we were very lucky there. We had options what was your earliest golfing memory uh my very first game of golf with my dad at uh, leopard rock up in the vumba mountains in the northeastern highlands of uh, of rhodesia um they had a little nine hole course it's now a beautiful golf resort uh but the hotel manager wrote us all into a, a golf competition we'd never played golf before and on the last hole um you know there were big rocks on the course it was up in the hills and my dad hit the only good shot of the day. And he ripped this shot and it hit one of these boulders and came back like a missile. And I put my hand up in front of my face and it nailed me right plumb on the right on the elbow bone. Uh, I was 11 years old and cried like hell. And um, you think right there and then I might have just said, you know, screw this. I don't want to, I don't want anything to do with this sport. But somehow we were addicted. <laughs> Amateur career highlights? Um Playing, obviously, play, playing for Adesia, playing for Natal um, when I was down at uni down there. Uh, won the Natal amateur, I won the leading amateur in the SA Open, um, and, 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 and had a nice amateur career. Really enjoyed myself playing for Adesia over at the Eisenhower Trophy. Um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was fantastic. You know, just, I just loved my amateur career, to be honest. Most satisfying win in your life and why? Um, whew, that's a tough one, really. My first win as a pro was the SA Open, which obviously was just unbelievable. You know, when I woke up the next morning, it was like some kind of dream come true. Wentworth was my biggest win, but the most satisfying was probably the Jersey Seniors Open um, after I'd been diag- diagnosed with uh, MS and told I would never play golf again. So that was that was just huge for me, and I thought, you know, I'm done and dusted. Um, the game was a heck of a lot harder after uh, getting the MS. I was lucky I got on a, a trial, which uh, really helped a hell of a lot. But yeah, that was probably that was probably the most satisfying. Being told you're never going to play golf again and go out and win a, a pro event, it was fantastic. I loved it. Best shot you've ever hit? Best shot I've ever hit was on the old Houghton 16. In that uh, that same SA Open um, in 1984, 
Uh, the 16th hole was a little dogleg par four. It's, in fact, I think it's one of the only greens that's still in its original position. Um, hit my tee shot just in the in the rough. Pulled my second shot. It hit the edge of the green and bounced left over. They had a deep pot bunker there, and under a bush. And at that point, I think I had a, I think I had a one shot lead over Fulton Allen. And I mean, there was really there was no shot. And the only shot I had was to aim back down the fairway with an ultra shut face, swing it into out, roll the hands over, and have the ball go past my left leg into the face of the bunker to hopefully hop out and get over the bunker. And I mean, it was a miracle and a fluke. And it, I just absolutely nailed it. And it came out at 100 miles an hour, hit the face of the bunker, popped out to four feet, and I popped it in to make a par. And that was unquestionably the best shot of my career. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. <laughs> and one shot you'd like over? Um, none, really. No, no, I, there's, there's no shots I'd like over. Um, you know, you, you have shots that you regret, decisions you regret, but I never really looked back and thought, geez, I'd like that over, because at the time, that's what you, you, you you're trying your hardest to do what you want to do. Um, so, you know, I, really, I wouldn't really want anything over. One commentary call you'd like over? Cool. I think I was nice to Dale Hayes once. I really, really, really regret that. Really regret that. Because, you know, if, if you get soft with Hayes, he's just going to grind you to dust. <laughs> no, I've got to be honest. I absolutely love the man. I love working for him. He's a wonderful human being. And no, I haven't had too many um, disasters. Um, my buddies are always amazed that uh, I don't swear on air because I've sort of been known to be a bit of a potty mouth at times. Um, and it's a miracle I haven't let go on air. But, you know, you, you make the odd mistake and the producers in your ear going, oh, be careful, be careful. You know, so, no, but nothing, nothing tragic. <laughs> if not a golfer? Um, I did law credits at uni, which didn't really interest me. I mean, I basically went to uni to keep my folks happy. Uh, my, you know, my dad said, look, you know, we'll help you your first couple of years on tour if you get a degree first, which was great advice. Um, um, I forgot the question. If not a golfer. <laughs> right, I'm going to talk about getting sidetracked. If not a golfer, I would probably, I would like to have been involved in wildlife, game ranging. But in those days, to be a game ranger, you had to go and get a degree in zoology and biology. And those were all my, my weakest uh, subjects. I didn't like the sciences at all. Um, and you know what? To be honest, it's a wonderful lifestyle, but it doesn't pay that well. Um, and really, pro golf was the only thing I ever wanted to do from the age of 12, probably. It was, it was all I wanted to do. I used to go, get in a bit of trouble at school with the, uh, the Christian brothers because I wasn't that keen on playing rugby because I didn't want to get broken up. I wanted to play golf. Uh, and really, I'd, I'd set my heart in it from the age of 12. So I never really thought about much else. One thing people are unlikely to know about you. I'm six foot three. I mean, I look much shorter than that on TV. <laughs> One thing, <laughs> you know, if only. One thing people don't know about me. People that don't, that didn't watch me play golf, 
probably don't realize how angry I used to get on the golf course, what a temper I had. You know, my, my persona on and off the course are, are pretty different. But the game drove me to distraction. Um, and I used to come off the course every day exhausted from fighting my temper and embarrassed about my behavior every day. You know, people that didn't watch me play golf go, oh, I can't, I can't imagine that. Well, let's go for a game of golf and I'll show you. <laughs> Looking back on your career, is there one tournament win you, you wish you had on your CV outside of the majors? Um, no. No, other than the major, no. You know, the, the, the PGA at Wentworth was uh, as big a, a tournament as I could win on the, uh, the European Tour, certainly. Two SA Opens and a Zimbabwe Open, they were, you know, massive in, in, in my life um, as far as personal satisfaction went. Um, no, not, not really. You know, you'd, everybody wants to win a major, there's no doubt. And I never played particularly well in the majors. Um, I was never a, a good enough long putter. And you have to be that in the majors because the greens are rock hard and you're going to have long putts all day long. I was great from eight, eight feet and in. But, uh, you know, I never really – and I tried too hard. And, you know, I always treated it like a special week. When I look back now, I think, why? But, um, no, not really. Not really. What does a typical day in your life look like? I wake up in the morning. I, have, I go down to have a cup of coffee and I get uh, given a list of things that I have to do by my wife, you know, all the things, you know what you have to do today? Oh God, we've been having this discussion for the last 20 years. She wakes up at six o'clock. When I get up at eight, her mind's buzzing and I just want to be left alone for an hour. But um, now when I'm at home, I wake up, um, I love my gardening. You know, this summer, I've just had five weeks off prior to the Irish Open uh, last week and I'll do... I suppose, six to eight hours a day in the garden. I find it extremely relaxing. Um, you know, when I'm, I'm at a tournament, you know, we do the commentary, you wake up, you do the commentary, you go back, you know, you travel back home. Um, but my happiest days are when I'm in the Bundu, well, if, other than when I'm with my children. Uh, you know, my children and my grandkids, they're the, you know, the, the key, key factor in my life. But uh, the place I like to be the most is, is in, in the Bundu in Africa. That's... Uh, if you get me started on what the average day is there, you better we are gonna miss the Ryder Cup. <laughs> so to get into the long form part of the of the chat, um, mm. I know you said that there's there's no shot you you'd like over in your career, but it does beg the question: Where does your nickname come from? Um, oh God, that goes back to when I was a, a junior golfer. I I was about I think I was about twelve years of age. And I was playing with a guy by the name of Peter Hrief, who was 18 and a giant of a man, lovely man, became a doctor. He and his brother were both doctors. And I was playing with uh, Pete. He, as I say, he was about to leave the junior ranks. I was 12. We were playing in a junior competition. And I hit a shot into a par five, my third wood shot, I think. And sadly, the, the green staff were mowing the greens. My ball hit the, 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 the mower and shot off into the woods nearly out of bounds, lost ball. And I said to him, uh, well, then I, I can have that over again. And he looked at me and said, you mean you want Ovies? I said, yeah, that's not fair. I've hit the mower. Because at my other golf club that I was a member at Waterford, if you hit the power lines, you got a free replay. And he said, no, sorry, it's a rubber the green. And 
I mean, I was a little bit feisty and I got so angry with him. And honestly, I, I, I came up to about his belt line and it ended up with him holding me at arm's length while I windmilled trying to hit him because I thought he had cheated me out of, out of a, a, a free reload. And he was just crying with laughter. You know, he had this little midget here <laughs> throwing punches at him at knee height. Yeah. Anyway, he got in and said, you know, who, who is this kid? He's complete lunatic. You know, he hit the mow and he wanted ovies. Um, and ovies was a term that we used in marbles, you know, when we played marbles. And from that day on, it was ovies. My dad called me ovies. I met Karen, my wife, as ovies. She's always called me ovies. All my buddies <laughs> call me ovies. And, uh, and it just stuck for life. It just stuck for life. Well, it's, it's amazing how, you know, broken telephone over the, over the years. Um, yeah. Your, you know, the, the origin of a story can sort of get lost. Um, yeah, um, the story, the story I heard via my dad, who I mean, at at, at best is a questionable source, um, <laughs> kind of said, "Oh, oh, yeah, it was." He made it seem like it was a pattern when in your in your junior days, not just a one-off incident. No, it was that, that one incident um, was um, I, I can't remember if it was a pattern, but I think it was that one incident. Um, and Peter Kriof and I became wonderful friends, and you know, he used to come and watch at tournaments, and he would just hold his hand out. And I knew what he meant. You know, the midget's trying to hit me in the kneecaps. <laughs> so it's it's interesting. Before we started recording, you mentioned, um, you know, you've basically been on the road for, for 43 mm. years as a, as a yeah. player and then as a, as a commentator. Mm. I mean, chat to me about how the complexion of the DP World, or I guess then the European Tour and now the DP World Tour has, has changed. And, and what do you think is the biggest difference that or the biggest shift that's occurred in that in that time would you say um i think the biggest thing is that i think we sort of treated it as a vocation you know we played for the love of the game there wasn't very much money you knew if you played well you could earn a living out of it um but you know i've spoken to hazy about this over the years and 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 other guys, you know, a guy like John Bland, you know, we've spoken about it. When you got on the first year of a tournament, you had no idea what the, the purse was that week. We didn't play for the money. You know, if you played well, the money followed. But we were out there to win. That was our goal was to win. Um, and, you know, I think there was more camaraderie. We used to sort of all go out together as a unit. Now the guys travel with their their manager and their coach and their sports psychologist and their dietitian and their da 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 uh, and I think there's less. Uh, I think there's less mixing amongst the players. Um, you know, everybody they've all got managers now. You know, we travelled. We sort of supported each other. Uh, it was us and our caddies. Um, you know, you went along. We we had a suitcase without wheels. We had a golf bag cover without wheels. We used to travel with a measuring wheel, our own practice balls because there were no range balls, and that's how we travelled: buses and taxis and things. Um, and we loved it. You know, there was there was no real sense of entitlement. Uh, and obviously the money. The money, I think the money's actually... I'm pleased for the guys that they're all earning good money. Don't get me wrong. I'm not jealous in any shape or form. But uh, in some ways, I think it detracts a little. I think there are a lot of guys out there now that go out and they're playing for the money. And I think you can see them. Guys that go, you know, 10, 15 years, they earn 10 million bucks and never win a tournament. And they don't really seem worried about it. You know, if, if, you know, after five years, if we hadn't won a tournament, we were appalled. You know, that was your goal was to win tournaments. That's all you played for was to win. 
it's also interesting what you say about you guys you know you it was a vocation and you played with the enjoyment because i mean any broadcast that that, that i ever watch you kind of see a guy maybe drain like a 15 20 footer for birdie or even eagle or whatever yeah and i mean his expression doesn't change there's no animation and it sort of begs the question how many of them or what percentage of them do you think actually enjoy what they do well i think that that's not really the players fault that's um that's a result of the sports psychologists you know stay in the moment keep your your um emotions on an even kill which is good advice you know mark McNulty was always like that mark was always on an even kill blandy was like that um but you know now they have they have their whole team with them um no i think there's there's still a lot of guys who, who love doing it you know there's a lot i think john ram is a guy who, who is seriously intent on setting records and winning tournaments he loves playing tiger was like that there's a lot of them but there are guys that are out there for the money you know they've you know, I don't know if you would call them less competitive or they've got less desire to win. But, um, you know, we only went out there every week. A, we loved the game, and B, we, we wanted to win. So, you know, I think that, would, that wouldn't really be fair. I think a lot of that is, um, you know, the mental training that these guys mm. have now. You know, they get trained from a young age. They go to college, et cetera. So, you know, and, I mean, I, I wish I'd been more like that. I wish I'd been able to, to stay on an even keel. But, you know, it was... It was wild highs and lows, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a really, really interesting take on it. I've never, I'd never actually thought of or sort of looked at it through that lens. Um, mm. You know, that it's it's actually the sports psychologist's influence rather than yeah. no like doubt. Their, their sort of natural wiring. Yeah, um, no, no, it's no doubt. But I'm, but I'm curious. I mean, talking about, you know, today's generation relative to, to yester, yesteryear, um, obviously, Rhodesia and now Zimbabwe, we're, we're, we're blessed with many great players over the years. You know, yourself, Nick Price, Mark McNulty. But it doesn't really seem to be anyone kind of coming through who can sort of quite kind of perform to that level. Why, why do you think that that is or maybe... You feel that's an unfair statement? What are your, what are your thoughts? No, we're, we're from Zimbabwe. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, golf was really, it was a, an, a, an elitist sport. You know, only, only the, the white populace played golf, really. Um, but, you know, when you consider, uh, at, there, there were probably, about, I think at most, there were probably 10,000 golfers in the country. So for a, a tiny population, they did turn out, some wonderful golfers, uh, you know, Fred, Fred Beaver, uh, you know, was the pro down at the Wild Coast. He won the SA Boys. Teddy Weber won the SA Amateur. Uh, Simon Hobday, Dennis Hutchinson. You know, you can reel them off. Um, and it, it was the support from the parents. It was um, how cheap it was to play golf and the access to golf. You know, school holidays, my folks would drop me off on the way to work at 7.30 in the morning and pick me up at 5.30 after work. And we just played golf and practiced all day, and it cost very little. You know, it was, a, it was a five cents green fee a day to play as much golf as you like. Oh, wow. Five cents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, five cents. Um, you know, our folks would give us a dollar, and that would pay for the green fees and a pie and a Coke at lunch. And, you know, you might gamble for a pie as well. Um, and you just play golf all day long. So, uh, you know, we've got some good good young golfers, uh, Scott Vincent and, and guys like that. But um, you know, 
It's a hard one to answer. The numbers, the numbers, you know, I mean, a couple of, we've had a couple of very good um, young black players, but it's not a particularly popular sport amongst the black populace, you know, it, it, at, at, a, at, a, at a higher level. It, it just isn't, you know, the, you know, football, rugby, those sort of sports are definitely uh, way more popular. But it is time we had a couple of uh, really good young golfers from 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 Zim, I think. We do. Yeah. We, we, well, saying that, we've got geez, we've got some young golfers from South Africa. My goodness. Yeah. Golf RSA, what a job they've done. Grant Hepburn and his team. I mean, it astonishes me when I go out every week and see these new young South African amateurs and pros. Wow. South African golf is pro golf is in a fantastic position and amateur golf. Yeah, I mean, I recently interviewed Casey Jarvis and we were just chatting mm. about how, you know, how quickly the guys learn to win as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, Casey was saying he was a little bit disappointed in the early part of his career because he, mm. you know, he didn't, he had a few seconds and he was getting frustrated and whatever and he mm. hadn't won. But the mere fact that he was contending week in and week out kind of speaks mm. to the, you know, the, the strength of the development structures that we have and the opportunities that those guys are afforded, which then leaves them better prepared when it actually comes time to turn pro. Oh, no question. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of guys, the Americans and the Europeans go to college. You know, some of our guys go to college from SA, but, you know, going through the uh, the golf RSA program, uh, they get the opportunity, you know, for good coaching and good uh, mental coaching. And as I say, Grant Hepburn and, you know, um, the backing of Johan Rupert, it was, it was his idea. I mean, they've given serious opportunity to the young players. And most importantly, they all come out as fine young gentlemen. That's the best part of it. You know, every single one of those kids that I've, I've met that's come through Golf RSA is polite. They're well-mannered. Oh, it's, it's, it's a joy to meet them. It really is. And that, to me, is more important than the quality of the golf. They find people. As a player, you you have so many metrics to kind of fall back on, to kind of understand where your strengths and weaknesses lie. And I was curious, how do you analyze your performance as a commentator? What does that look like? So at the end of a week, like like this past week, for example, in, in Ireland, how mm-hmm. how would you kind of analyze your, your performance? Or what is that? What does that look like? Um. As long as you're not getting crapped on by the bosses, you've done a decent job, <laughs> basically. <laughs> no, you know, I, I, I think um, having uh, my wife, Karen, um, you know, and honest friends is an important thing to me because, you know, I've always said to my, I always said to my buddies, you know, the day um, you think that I've lost it as a commentator or you know, I'm getting big-headed or sounding full of myself, set me straight. Um, and it's important to have people like that around you. But, yeah, I mean, you know, people would be honest with me. And, you know, I get I get compliments. You get the odd person that, that thinks you're an idiot, which is fine. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to gauge. You know, it's easier to gauge your abilities as a golfer because they're the scores mm. on the board. But as a commentator, you know, you've got to just, you just got to do what you do. You know, my, my goal has always been to, to be honest, call the shots as I see them. You know, if a, if a bad shot's a bad shot, I'll say it. And if a, if a good shot's a good shot or a great shot, I'll say that too. I, I yeah. see it as my job is to, to analyze uh, the quality of the shots and what's going through players' heads. And luckily, having played you know, at a top level for 35 years, 
I think I'm qualified to to understand what is going through the players' heads. Yeah. But I mean, golf is at quite an interesting point in, in time now with so many kind of interesting things going on with the mm. advent of live and now the I mean, I don't know if you necessarily called it a merger, whatever they're terming it now, mm. um, taking place and, and also the the rollback of of the ball. I mean, is it fair to say that 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 golf is kind of at a at a bit of a crossroads? And do you kind of see any sort of resolution? Because it seems like there is a lot of a lot of the a lot of the top players aren't very happy at, at the prospect of the live guys sort of returning to the to the tour and and having mm. those opportunities again. And similarly, mm. they they aren't too thrilled at the prospect of a, a a rolled back ball either. Yeah, I mean, you know, the live thing, the whole thing is a mystery. You know, the the PJ tour were were never going to make a deal with live, and then lo and behold, and you know, in the, in the in the back rooms, the deal was done. Maybe they should have got together sooner and, and avoided all of this chaos. I don't really know. Um, you know, and I've never I've never held it against or berated any player that went to live. Mm. You know, the, the the money was too big, and most of the guys that went to live were guys either I think they sort of fell into three or four categories. They were either towards the end of their career, their bodies had packed up, or they really didn't enjoy playing, you know, their game had gone off. Mm. Uh, some guys, you know, the game had gone and they didn't see themselves as having much longevity. And some guys just don't like playing the tour for whatever reason or other. They want to be with uh, families and things. Um, so that's fine. You know, they made the, the decision to, to take the money uh, and good on them. Happy days. If somebody waves 50 or 100 million in your face and you're getting towards the end of, end of the road, you'd be an idiot not to go. Mm. But then uh, the guys that really got my goat were the guys that had made you know, 10 to 50 million and then uh, turn around and stab the tour in the back saying how rubbish it all was, blah, 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 blah. That to me was just being entitled and brattish and that I had no time for whatsoever. So who knows where the live thing goes? Uh, you know, it's still got to be agreed to and ratified by the players. You know, there's still a chance that the players could block it. I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, I, I have no idea. As far as the, the equipment goes, I'd love to see a rollback. I think... Um, I think modern equipment has just uh, taken a lot of flavor out the game. It really has. You know, and I, I feel sad for the young players that they don't have the opportunity, the delights of, of that feel of a golf club and having to shape shots and alter your spin and your flight. You know, these guys today are no less talented than we were. You know, every generation are equally talented, but they, they just not ask the same questions. They're not asked to develop those skills because of the equipment, low spinning balls, huge driver heads that, that are low spinning as well. And um, the distance thing, uh, the objective is, is just to get as strong as you can, pound it as far as you can, find it, knock it on and, and try and pat it in the hole. And I think the, the game's lost a lot of its flavor. And that's why I love watching Lynx golf in the wind, because you have to play proper golf on Lynx, Lynx courses, particularly in the wind. Um, and I'd like to see it rolled back because the distance has made a lot of the golf courses defunct. You know, you can make a golf course seven and a half thousand yards. It's not going to help. You're going to have to make it a minimum of 8,000. You know, I saw it last week again at the Irish Open. Par fives are 568 yards. I mean, those par fives for us in the 90s were a drive, a three wood, and an 80 or 90 yard wedge. These guys are hitting drive and four iron onto the green. I mean, it's just not, it's not the same game. 
Uh, you know, how long do you, are you going to make courses? Longer and longer and longer. And yeah, I just think the game is less, uh, it's less, there's less artistry in the game now. It's mm. all about how far you can hit it, which I really think is, it, I think the game's lost a lot of it, a, a lot of its, uh, its glamour in that respect. Yeah, it's super interesting because I had the the privilege of interviewing Nico Colsarts on 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 Friday, and mm. he was saying, you know, he can sort of identify with the type of game being played today, whereas um, your generation would struggle because, as you say, the the whole would be played in a completely different way. It's like literal mm. polar opposites, mm. um, and it must be mind blowing. Well, you know, if you'd said to me, look. You can all hit the ball 300 yards plus and go into uh, par fours with mid-irons. I mean, Dustin Johnson was about four or five years ago. Never hit more than a seven-iron into a single par four the entire season. You know, if you said to me, look, you can hit the ball 330 next week and hit seven-iron as the longest club into every par four, uh, would you like to do that? Absolutely not. No, I want to I wanna be, able, be able to hit every club in the bag, and let's find out who's the best golfer with every department in the in, in the bag. I, you know, just, look, I was always a sort of medium to short hitter, uh, but I could compete because my short game, um, you know, was quite stellar without sounding immodest. Do you think the, the particular courses that have become obsolete because of where equipment has, has, has gone that are going to all of a sudden become relevant again and, and could actually make the game quite exciting and almost actually give it that sort of like, I mean, I don't know if I'll get the, the era right, but that mm. it'll give it that sort of like 1970s, 80s type feel again. Yeah, I would like to see that. I would like to see some of the, the classic courses being played again. You know, we, we just tend to see so many of these American type courses, you know, straight fairways, tree line, thick rough, pounded, and a lot of the time there are no trees. So, you, you know, you can just hit it as far as you want you're only going in with a wedge or a nine out at the rough, so what does it matter? You know, I'd rather go with a, a wedge out the rough than a five iron from the fairway. You know, week in a week out, you're going to do better like that. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of the courses are, you know, they've just got to keep pushing tees further and further back, and it's still not playing the way the course was played in the 80s and 90s. Um, yeah, I, I would like to see a rollback, I re and I, I wouldn't be against bifurcation. You know, they have a different ball for the for the pros because. One of the joys of the game is that the weekend golfer, when he watched the golf in 70s, 80s, and 90s, he could he could imagine himself hitting that same shot that a pro's hit. Oh, you know, when I hit my best, I can do that. Well, forget it. You're going to go and watch Rory and Ram now, the average weekend golfer. This is, that's not even a dream. You can't hit shots like that. It's, it is a different sport. And that was one of the great things about golf is that all golfers – could imagine themselves hitting those same shots on a good day. Do you think the the landscape of the world rankings and, and and things like that may may change and the orders of merit because of of the rollback, or do you think the you know the guys that are already kind of ahead of the distance curve now are just going to remain that way and the status quo in that sense may may remain the same? Yeah, the the cream will rise to the top. The cream will rise to the top, and and. Um... You know, the guys that are at the top will still be at the top. They'll just hit it shorter. Um, and I think the better strikers will actually, uh, they will gain from it, you know, because this has narrowed the field. You know, everybody's become a good striker. You know, low spinning ball, pound it, 
You know, let's see the guys that can shape shots, flight shots, shape shots. Oh, man, I, I just want to see that again. And there's not that many that can do it because they're not asked to do it. Uh, it the game was more fun, I think, when you had to you had to play that sort of golf, I believe. I, you know, I had the benefit of playing um, 80s, 90s, uh, and, you know, into the early 2010s. So I played with both balls, and I played with new and old equipment. Um, and the new equipment's not nearly as much fun. It's just not as much fun. It's as simple as that. Let's add some fun back to the game. Do you play much these days? Like, how often are you getting to play? No, I don't play at all. No, I retired in uh, nine years ago, and I haven't touched. A, I haven't really touched a club since then. Um, I retired with the intention of retiring, and uh, you know, I said to you, you know, my temper got the better of me. I was always, I was always an angry man, uh, and the day I, I decided I wasn't competitive, um, the pain outweighed the pleasure. You know, I love competing. That's what I love doing. I love competing. Um, and that sort of balanced up the, <laughs> the fact that I was a lunatic on the golf course. <laughs> so, no, I just, uh, you know, as soon as I felt I wasn't competitive, I thought, mm. this, there's no point in this. But now I've got grandkids that want to learn to play golf, so maybe I'll have to scrape some rust off the sticks. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, uh, Nico Colsarts was saying if, you know, if his if his kids one day want to pursue the game professionally, mm, mm. he doesn't know how you'd feel about it. He because he knows how sort of cutthroat it can be. He said unless yeah. they're like supremely, supremely talented and and they have really, really strong minds, he doesn't know if he would if you would recommend it. Um, yeah, I think you know what I've always thought. Uh, you know, the way we were brought up in Zim, most of us were never pushed. We were seriously encouraged, but never pushed. And the, the guys that were pushed by their parents, they wanted this, the, the kids to be uh, world-class golfers. Most of them sort of rebelled and rejected it, never really got anywhere. But, uh, yeah, I would uh, I would back my grandkids to the hilt. Uh, you know, same with my kids. My son plays off scratch, never really wanted to be a pro golfer. That's fine. If they wanted to be, you give them full support. Mm. Um but uh, they've got to understand that it's, you know, it's not a party. It's a career. And you better be doing eight hours a day what the guy in the office is doing eight hours a day. Because there are guys that are going to do that. And if they're going to be as talented as you, and if they outwork you, you're going nowhere in a hurry. Simple. Yep. So the Ryder Cup is, what, like two weeks away now. And, mm. you know, it, it seems like the conversation heading into most of these is always that, you know, on the face of it, the the US have the have the stronger team. Mm. But what do you foresee taking place in, in Rome? I mean, obviously in 2018, for example, at Le Golf National, they set it up mm. such mm. that all of the American strengths were kind of sort of neutralized, nullified, whatever the whatever mm. word you want to use. Mm. Do you kind of foresee something similar happening with in, in, in Rome? And what do you ultimately see the result being? Absolutely, they must set it up to suit the Europeans. When we play in, in America, they suit it up to suit the Americans. They they play to their strength. That's one of the, the bonuses of home turf. Uh, I think it's going to be a really good contest. I think there's two excellent teams. I don't think either team really outweighs the other hugely. Um, and, you know, historically, what is it, like 39 years? Well, how many years is it since the, the Americans won in, in in Europe? It's a long time. Home advantage is a big thing. Um, you know, the guys are, are pumped up by their home crowds. 
Um, I think it's going to be a good contest. You know, whoever wins, wins, but uh, all we want is a, is a good contest. I obviously played the European Tour my whole career. I'd like Europe to win. Uh, but as long as we have a good sporting contest and a close contest, happy days. That's what the Ryder Cup's got to be about. Why do you think the the Europeans have always done so well and, and sort of punched above their above their weight from a from a ranking standpoint or I mean not necessarily a talent standpoint, but certainly a ranking standpoint. Why do you think that that is the case and why do you think um the US have historically, I guess, sort of underachieved, uh, certainly over the last sort of two or three decades? Uh, camaraderie, simple as that. The Europeans are a, a tighter knit bunch. Uh, generally speaking, um, you know, the guys the guys mix, they get on, um, they mix more. You know, in America, the guys tend to, to be more loners. I think they do their own thing. We've seen a little bit different with the likes of Spieth and Justin Thomas, where they go on holiday now, and Ricky Fowler, which is a great thing, and I think that's helped their their team spirit. But uh, you know, and a lot of it was brought about by by Seve, Seve Ballesteros. You know, he instilled this this desire to play the Ryder Cup as a European team. Uh, he was huge, and as as did Tony Jacklin. You know, he sort of started turning things around for Europe uh, when he was captain. Probably changed now with the modern game. You know, all the guys are doing their own thing and uh, more individualistic. But yeah, I think the Europeans generally are, are a close knit community. Always have been. And what do you what do you make of um, Ludwig Eberg's um, pick? I mean, obviously the first guy to play in a in a mm. Ryder Cup before before a major as a, as a pro. I mean, it's you obviously you obviously <laughs> watched him in in in, yeah. in Kran, for example, and. I mean, he mm. obviously put on some some quality display there, but you know, mm. do you do you back the the sort of balance that that Donald has sort of struck with his team of like youth and experience? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I think it's good. You know, I've, you know, people say Aberg shouldn't have got it because he'd only played ten tournaments, blah blah blah. But the guy had to win the tournament at Crown to get his spot mm. to earn it, and he went out and did it. For me, geez, that says more than anything. The guy's, the guy's got what it takes. He's got the desire. He's got the ability. I feel seriously sorry for, for Moronk. Um, yes. You know, I think he'd be, he'd be within his rights to feel aggrieved. He hasn't made a big thing about it. He was disappointed. I know that. Um, you know, it supported the European tour. But Aberg hasn't had a chance to support the European mm -hmm. tour. He's just turned pro. Yeah. But uh, I think you'd be... The way he's performed, I think you'd be silly not to have him on the team because he's going to bring some young fire, you know, some young blood. We've got a good mix of uh, experience, uh, some fine young rookies. But I, I'm, I'm very happy with the European team. I think it's, I think, I think they've got a great mix there, and I think Luke Donald will be a really good captain. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, I think, um, I think Aberg. Yeah, I mean, it's that old thing of like, it was something that I, that I heard said of um, of Aiden Markram when he first burst onto the scene is mm. if you if you're good enough, you you're old enough type of thing. You yeah, know, so, a good point. Good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But what was also yeah. what I also found sort of quite a quite an eerie an eerie stat was in 2004 mm. when Luke Donald made his his first uh, team as a as a captain's pick. 
Mm. He the next week after the announcement, he won in in Kron, mm. and then uh, this time round, Aberg yeah. um, won to then make the team, which is which is yeah. weird. It's crazy. Absolutely. No, I think I think look, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of pressure on him. He's a young man, but you know what? Maybe he's too young to worry about that pressure just yet. You know, when you when you're that age, you you sort of feel immortal. You feel bulletproof. You know, uh, I think it'd be quite important to see how he does. Um, when he goes out, if they put him out in the early sessions, I would put him out his first outing. I would put him out in the uh, the better ball, you know, where he can play his own game. Uh, he's backed up by you know another very good player, and let him settle into it because it is going to be a brand new experience for him. Never been on the tier of a major championship, and taught, you know I've known a lot of the Ryder Cup players over the years, and they reckon that it is the most unbelievable form of pressure. A guy like Mark James who lived for competition. He was as hard as nails. You talk to him and he just says, look, you know, you, you, get, you have moments where you feel like your legs your legs are paralyzed. You know, you can't move your legs over a putt. It's, it's just a completely different kind of pressure. And, and Jesse just loved it. But when he's saying stuff like that, for a young man, it's a big thing. Break him in slowly. Because what happens if you put him out in the foursomes and he, he's overcome by it and plays rubbish? Now what do you do with a guy? Do you leave him till the singles? No, break him in slowly, and Luke Donald would have thought of all of this. Luke's a smart guy. Yeah, I mean, you you know, like it's it's interesting because Nico Kolsatz was saying to me um, during the conversation that he thinks the best advice a rookie can receive is even if you're not playing the 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 foursomes in you know in the in the morning on the Friday or or the Saturday, mm. or the case may be. Go out and watch the tee shots that yeah. even the most experienced Ryder Cup player at the event. Yes, yeah. yeah, because there's some can... wides. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like that's what he did in in, in 2012, and he said like uh-huh. Tiger hit a hit a hit a very um, scratchy opening tee shot, as did mm. Furyk, as did Stricker, and I mean those are like guys with a with a wealth of experience, and yeah, I think it just it, it brings out a, a different a different side. To to you, and it's a completely different type of of pressure entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you've got to go out there and just you you have to accept that you're going to be terrified. And if you go out there and think, oh, this this won't worry me, blah, 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 you're going to be on a hiding to nothing. You've got to accept that it is big pressure uh, and and deal with it. You know, I've seen guys that go, oh, you know, I don't don't feel pressure well. Hmm. They really don't get anywhere. You you have to accept that you're going to be nervous. Everybody's going to be nervous, and that's a, that's that's good advice from Nico. Go out there and see some of the shots that the best guys hit, and then just go just go and play your game. Be you. That's what I would say. Go out, enjoy it, and be you. Hundred percent. Well, you've been super super generous with your with your time, but so just one one final question. Obviously, this week being the BMW PGA um, mm. at, at at Wentworth. There's also the the G4D event, which is kind of the the precursor, so to speak. And as an Edgar ambassador yourself, I mean, you've you've obviously seen these guys play at at mm. um, at, at the various events. Yeah. What do you feel the the sort of everyday golfer could learn from you know the approach that these disabled guys um, have to to their game? Well, I admire them hugely. You know, we, we see guys with um, various levels of disability. Um, and the fact that they go out, um, 
and they will do anything to enjoy the love of the game. You know, they they will they'll get past their disabilities and they'll just go out and love playing golf. And that to me is the key. And I, I really do admire them hugely. You know, you see guys out there, you know, guys on one leg and guy with guys with one arm and they want to play golf. And that's what the game means to us because we love it so much. I tell you who must really, really love the game is mm. Ken Green because yes. the fact that he's, I mean, gone through all that he's gone through from oh, an injury man. standpoint and oh. just mental health and all the things that he's, that he's been through in his life and the fact that he still wants to compete, albeit yes. amongst effectively amateurs, yeah. Um on on a on a on a stage like the G four D tour kind of yeah. says mm. a lot about his his character and also his love mm. for the game as well. A hundred percent. You know, we had uh, Brendan Lawler last uh, week who's one of the, the top European uh, G four D players. He was doing a bit of commentary with us. Um you know, there's no there's no sense of self pity. Mm. You know, he's a great young lad. And they, they just want to be involved with the game and they want to enjoy it and go and play golf and be the best they can. And I absolutely love that. I'm, I'm so proud of those guys. 100%. Well, Tony, you've been, as I say, incredibly generous with your time. So we'll let you get on with, with one of your very few off days. And thank <laughs> you so, so much for, for joining the podcast. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure, Craig. And it was nice to meet you last week. And I hope the podcast series does really well. Thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you.